Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The French election may reflect the political trend for future EU elections as Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon win big and President Macron faces diminished political power. Also, Congress has passed a bill that will empower the U.S. government to influence the political decisions of African independent nations through coercion. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn is professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, researcher, and his latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. French President Emmanuel Macron is set to face a potentially tumultuous five years of deadlock after his alliance fell short of an absolute majority in a parliamentary runoff on Sunday, just weeks after he was reelected. Voters massively came out in support of the far-right national rally and the left-wing coalition NOOPS, depriving Macron of a ruling majority. Macron's ensemble coalition won 245 seats, down from 345 in the outgoing chamber, according to final results. NOOPS, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, got 131 seats, while Le Pen's National Party rose sharply, and they're up to 89 seats. Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, June 19th was a significant day for the global left. It's not only the French election, which I'll advert to momentarily, but also the election in Colombia, where the left triumphed in the third largest country in the hemisphere, the second largest Spanish-speaking country on planet Earth after Mexico, speaking of Colombia, with on the front page of the New York Times, the triumphant a vice president, uh, Francia Marquez, appearing in all her glory in kente cloth, of all things, <laughs> uh, raising aloft the hand of president-elect uh, uh, Petro. Uh, this is uh, obviously solid news for neighboring Venezuela. Uh, I sent a text to a friend immediately suggesting that Mr. Petro uh, instantaneously get in touch with the security forces in Havana uh, because this victory for the left will not be greeted with equanimity, not least in Langley, Virginia. So to be warned is to be forearmed. But it was accompanied, as you suggested in your opening, by the remarkable triumph of the left in France. And not only Mr. Mélenchon, a former Trotskyite, but an alliance including Greens, Communists, socialists. In the first instance, it's good news for the French working class. Uh, they can sleep easier, not having to fret as much about the prospect that the vampire, speaking of Mr. Macron, will sneak into their kitties and into their bank accounts and loot them on behalf of the 1% by helping to uh, raise the retirement age, by helping to weaken the world-class French healthcare system, which we in the United States can only dream about. With regard to foreign policy, too, I think it is something for Langley to worry about. 
before this uh, intervention in Ukraine, February 24, uh, 2022, we already knew that Mr. Macron himself had spoken of NATO as being brain dead. Uh, the French had pulled out of the military wing of NATO some years ago. Uh, there is a lingering and persistent anti-U.S. imperialist sentiment uh, in France. It helps to influence not only the left, but also the right, because uh, Madame Marine Le Pen of the uh, former National Front, her party also did remarkably well. And given the fact that the major sectors of the French electorate, left, right, and center, uh, all have a bone to pick with U.S. imperialism, does not necessarily bode well for this NATO intervention in the Ukraine, which was already on the ropes. Uh, that's the import of recent headlines. And I think it would also be worthwhile for your listeners not to necessarily draw parallels between the left in France and the Social Democrats of Olaf Scholz in Berlin and the Greens of uh, his coalition which controls the foreign ministry in Berlin. Because Germany, because the results of World War II and the persistence of U.S. military bases on their soil, is much more deeply influenced by U.S. imperialism than France is. And as I've suggested on these airways before, what you're going to see is a sort of tug of war for the soul of Germany uh, between France on the one hand and U.S. imperialism on the other, and I think the odds are that France will prevail, because after all, France and Germany are the locomotive of the European Union, and both countries know that the Trump wing of the U.S. ruling class uh, means ill for the European Union, meaning ill for Paris and Berlin. I think that this victory will also have knock-on effects in Italy, uh, number three in the European Union. So it's a very significant win. It's something to celebrate, and I think it opens the door for even brighter vistas tomorrow. So that sounds like the answer to the question I was going to pose. With Macron's relative majority, he now finds himself having to negotiate with Le Pen and um, Mélenchon based upon his history which, who do you think he turns to and where do you think he gets the basis of the support he's going to need to get his agenda through? Well, uh, I guess I'm going to dial back my note of optimism that I just <laughs> enunciated because I think he's going to turn to Madame Le Pen. Uh, I, I think that his uh, corporate backers will demand as much. His corporate backers are definitely afraid of the left. They're definitely afraid that the left will demand a bigger share of their super profits. Uh, Madame Le Pen will instead uh, turn antagonism towards the African population and the Arab population, which is something that the 1% is quite comfortable with. And keep in mind that one of the reasons why the left did so well was, number one, only about half the voters turned out to the polls. However, a significant percentage of voters in Arab and African precincts turned out. That was good news for the left, 
is not necessarily good news for the French ruling class, nor their puppet, speaking of Mr. Macron. Likewise, to dial back a, a bit what I said a moment or two ago, or to, to put it uh, more diplomatically, to balance what I said a few moments ago, given what we already know about French imperialism being dependent on U.S. imperialism, there will be enormous pressure on France to collaborate with the Marine Le Pen forces and to turn its back on the left-wing forces, which are, as noted, heavily dependent upon African and Arab voters who have relatives and the like in the French neo-empire that resides in Africa. So if you balance my first two comments and synthesize those two threads, I think you'll come out with a reasonable analysis of what to expect from France. Uh, let me ask you this. <clears throat> what, what, does this cause any fear or concern um, in other countries in, uh, throughout Europe? Are other, some of these other leaders looking over their shoulders now, um, fearing you know, similar outcomes in their countries? Well, I think it's possible. Uh, as you know, uh, Switzerland uh, borders France remarkably. Uh, Switzerland, like Sweden threw overboard its decades of neutrality in order to jump aboard the Ukraine train uh, with the U.S. imperialism at the wheel. I think that uh, perhaps there will be second or third thoughts in Western Switzerland, which abuts France, which, of course, uh, in some ways is the heart of the Swiss economy. Now, with regard to Belgium as well, given the fact that there's a large French-speaking population in Belgium, the Walloon population, which is deeply influenced uh, by France, uh, if I were in Brussels, not speaking of NATO or the European Union, but the country of Belgium, uh, I would be looking over my shoulder nervously. And similarly, with regard to London, the threat there is not so much an upsurge by the British left, but more so the fact that uh, on the one hand, you have these forces in France, which will be reinforced in terms of their antagonism towards Boris Johnson's misrule in London. At the same time, uh, given the fact that the left, and to an extent the right as well, and to an extent, as I said, the center as well, expressed reservations about NATO, uh, this calls into question Boris Johnson's plan to keep a tie to Europe, not through the European Union, but through the U.S.-led NATO. So uh, in some ways, this French election is going to uh, overturn the table, so to speak. It's going to cause reevaluations in European capitals, but also in Langley and in Washington. There's a new bill that passed the uh, House of Representatives reinvoking an old Russian boogeyman as a pretext for more U.S. intervention in Africa. Liberal Democrats voted for the countering malign Russian influence activities in Africa Act. It was a 415 to 9 vote, and this takes place in the historic shadow of the United States being involved in the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, uh, the overthrow of Nkrumah, 
and also the arrest of Nelson Mandela. It seems as though the imperial United States is back to its old machinations. Well, you have a point there, and I'm afraid to say that the man who carried this legislation, Congressional Black Caucus leader Gregory Meeks of Southeast Queens, who happens to be the chairperson of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, is going to face a storm of protests in his district. I addressed his district, believe it or not, just a few days ago, virtually, and already their folks are gearing up to begin with for a write-in campaign against Gregory Meeks for November because it's too late to uh, manage a ballot challenge, a ballot challenge, and ultimately for a primary challenge going forward, and if necessary, a, a third-party challenge. So his constituents are upset, to put it mildly, about this as well they should, because basically what this legislation portends is an attempt at recolonizing Africa. That is to say that to the extent that the North Atlantic countries manage to boycott Russian energy, they'll turn to African energy. To the extent that they manage to boycott uh, Russian palladium, which is necessary for catalytic converters, which are part of the green economy, as it, insofar as they're installed on autos, they'll turn to South African palladium. To the extent that the North Atlantic countries boycott the Russian titanium necessary for jet planes, China just rolled out its challenger to Airbus of Europe and Boeing of the United States, they'll turn to South African titanium. And we know, given what happened in 2011 with the NATO overthrow of Libya, Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, and installation of riotous anarchy in that North African country, up to and including the targeting of darker-skinned Libyans and migrants from due south, uh, leading to the recrudescence of a kind of neo-slavery, we know that NATO does not have warm feelings for Africa. And so the fact that Gregory Meeks would turn his back on this history, thumb his nose at his constituents, thumb his nose at independent Africa, is an outrage. Not only that, but going forward, given the right-wing tendencies in the United States of America, as evidenced by the testimony of Judge Luttick at the January 6th hearings, where he suggested that the last fair presidential election in the United States for some time to come might have happened in November 2020, because the Republicans do not plan on losing another election, and by means mostly foul, will accomplish that goal, their first victim will be us, darker-skinned people, black people. That's the history of the United States. And we'll have to turn to the international community, not least South Africa, not least some of these countries that Gregory Meeks has in the crosshairs. So I have to wonder if Gregory Meeks has lost his cotton-picking mind. <laughs> I mean, is this a mental health legislation, which is part of, the, part of the gun control bill that's being pushed in the Senate right now? Do they have Gregory Meeks in mind? Because certainly I think that the evidence is suggested that he's losing his marbles if he has not already. Dr. Gerald Horn is professor of history at the University of Houston, Texas, an author and a historian. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. NATO has moved to block goods from getting to the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad via rail, and some politicians in Russia are calling for a military solution, arguing that this constitutes a direct aggression against their land. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. Scott, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. NATO member state Lithuania is now effectively engaged in direct aggression against Russia, Senator Andrei Klimov argued in his Telegram post on Monday. According to the Russian politician who heads a commission for the defense of state sovereignty, by refusing to let certain certain goods pass through its territory to the Russian region, Lithuania has violated a treaty signed between Moscow and Brussels 20 years ago. Scott Ritter, your thoughts? Well, he's he's 100% correct. I mean, there's there's no doubt that Lithuania is in violation of its treaty obligations. Um, you know, Lithuania will say that uh, these are superseded by its obligations as a member of the European Commission and that it has to abide by the findings of the European Commission that sanctioned goods cannot be allowed to transit through Lithuanian soil. Um, Lithuania needs to watch out what it's doing because it's literally playing with fire. Uh, Russia so far has indicated that it will be able to make up for the shortfalls uh, brought about by the um, the rail embargo uh, by you know uh, bringing more ships and that all the goods necessary can be met by ship. But um, you know Russia has made it clear that it views um, the uh, sovereignty of uh, Kaliningrad um, as an extension of the sovereignty of uh, of Russia, um, not just in terms of internal, meaning what goes inside the borders, but the fact that it must be permitted a continuous and unobstructable link with Russia. And that is, that is done via this treaty, uh, through the rail. Um, and Lithuania has violated that. So um, it, <laughs> if you want to go to war with Russia, this is a good way to start it. That's all I'm going to say. And I'll also point out that you know NATO has long recognized something called the Sawicki Corridor, uh, which is basically um, a bottleneck of land um, from uh, connecting uh, between Kaliningrad and Belarus, where you have the confluence of the Polish border and the Lithuanian border. Um, and they've recognized this as this being one of the great um, weaknesses in the, in the Baltics, meaning that if Russia were to launch an offensive from Belarusian soil uh, through this corridor, uh, it could cut all three Baltic republics off from the rest of NATO physically. Um, and there's nothing NATO can do to stop this. They literally have nothing to prevent this. Uh, and if you wanted to invite a Russian military action at the, along this corridor to um, create a land bridge, so to speak, uh, the best way to do that would be to violate your treaty obligations when it comes to ensuring Russian access and Russian connectivity uh, between mainland Russia and the Kaliningrad enclave by rail. Before Lithuania took this latest action, they closed its airspace to flights from Russia to Kaliningrad. If Russia were to decide to take action, where would Lithuania get support from? The question now comes, uh, it's a matter of law. First of all, I mean, we can sit here and play lawyer all we want. If Russia were to act militarily against uh Lithuania, Lithuania would seek to invoke Article 5 of the NATO uh, right. Charter 
and Russia Russia could find itself at war with NATO. No, no, I understand that, but I'm I'm just trying to figure out which of the NATO countries I'm looking at the map and trying to see where well, the right where the, the bat, right right off the bat they would be destroying a German um, battle group, NATO battle group. Uh, so they would be they would be killing about 1,500 Germans. Uh, they would be killing around 1,000 Americans who are in Lithuania as well. They would be killing about 500 British. Uh, so they'll be fighting NATO uh, because gotcha. NATO has four deployed resources into Lithuania. Oh, okay. So, uh, uh, Scott, one of the things there's an article in uh, in in, uh, lit, in, in uh, RT, and basically it says um, that the excuse me, Russia has warned that unless the blockade of Kaliningrad is lifted immediately, M- Moscow may have no choice but to quote untie its hands and rectify the situation by any means necessary. Um, It doesn't appear right now that they're taking military action, but based on what's happened in the last six months, I wouldn't rule it out. Scott, do do you completely rule it out or do you think there's a possibility? No, I 100 percent rule it in unless Lithuania reverses this this action. I believe Russia will um, do its best to achieve a diplomatic resolution, which means that they won't act precipitously, but um, Russia cannot allow this to stand. This is a literally, this is one of those existential survival issues. Uh, Kaliningrad is Russia. I don't know what's going through the minds of the Lithuanians. I don't know what's going through the minds of the European Commission. Russia will not let this stand. Uh, it will mean the destruction of not only Lithuania, but Poland and the Baltics. And if NATO wants it to make the destruction of all of Europe, they're welcome to do that. But Russia will not be bluffing when Russia says it will resolve this using all means necessary. Uh, that means that when diplo- diplomacy fails, the military will be brought in. And uh, Lithuania won't last six days. Um, they're not the Ukrainians. They have no military worthy of the name. And the Russians will not be seeking to occupy Lithuania at this point, but, but merely blasting a corridor connecting Belarus Belarus with um, with with Kaliningrad and then daring NATO to do anything about it. Wilmer, if I may throw in one one more question, Scott. And I wonder about this because we've seen this before. Look, the Baltic states are a bunch of states that, you know, like are a a postage stamp size state, right? They've, you know, all of them together aren't even half of the uh, of, of like the state of Maryland, for God's sake, or something. They got nobody there. Here's my question. Will the EU and the U.S. really say we're going to go to all-out war with Russia over the Baltic states? Well, the question is how much the uh, EU and the United States and indeed NATO were consulted in uh, prior to the Lithuanian action. This is an act of war. I mean, it's, uh, it's just like uh, putting a naval blockade on a port is an act of war. Uh, Lithuania has committed an act of war by preventing Russia's uh, treaty-given um, rights to, uh, to continuous unobstructed access between Russian territory and, uh, and Kaliningrad using this rail line per the Treaty of 2002. So, you know, it, 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 legally speaking, Lithuania started this conflict, and, and uh, if they did it from a national basis, then this would be similar to Turkey going into Syria um, and being attacked by Russia and NATO saying, well, it's not our business because you and you, you did something outside the framework of NATO. 
So, you know, I don't know how much NATO was consulted. I don't know what uh, the European Union uh, was thinking. That I know that this is based upon a European Commission decision uh, that Lithuania did go to the European Commission to seek a, uh, a, a you know, a legal finding. And the European Commission uh, noted that goods that are under European Union sanction um, can be blocked from transiting Lithuanian soil um, as a measure of enforcing those sanctions. Whether the European Commission took into account the 2002 treaty, and um, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, Russia certainly is. And <laughs> Russia is the only vote that counts at this point in time. Lithuania is walking a rager edge. I mean, if I were calling up the Lithuanian uh, president or prime minister right now, I'd say, you're really close to dying, fool. Because Russia's not in the mood to play games. Um, Ukraine's about ready to find that out, uh, you know, having struck uh, an oil rig. Um, and Lithuania, if you, if you really want to play big boy games, understand that your kindergarten school uh, soccer team just isn't, isn't up to the task. And I, you know, NATO, the question is, what is NATO willing to do? Because NATO will lose. I, I've always laughed about these battle groups that they send in there. They're reinforced battalion size. They're supposed to be a tripwire, but they have no combat capability, uh, and they will be destroyed within literally uh, a day maximum um, if the Russians bring to bear their, their, their capabilities. And again, on this one, I don't believe Russia would invade the Baltic states. I think Russia would simply um, ensure that uh, Kaliningrad has uh, – you know, the access that is required for Russian security, which means uh, probably, um, you know, seizing the Soleki corridor um, and then daring NATO to do something. And uh, that would require NATO to mobilize. And while they're mobilizing, Russia may just start plinking them off. So this is a bad situation for NATO. They really don't need this fight right now. This is stupidity times 20. Um, and hopefully common sense will prevail and somebody will come in and say, no, nah, Russia gets a waiver, uh, whatever you want to say, diplomatic niceties, and uh, Lithuania will um, reverse course. Because otherwise, it's literally a one-way path towards uh, you know, a cliff that uh, is not survivable. So when NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says that we have to prepare for this to last for years— a lot of folks interpret that to mean that the conflict in Ukraine, but with this latest action by Lithuania, this makes me believe that he's really talking about a, uh, a greater expansion of this conflict into other countries. Well, I mean, I, I took his statement to be talking about Ukraine. Um, that doesn't mean that NATO hasn't uh, you know, considered because NATO has said they, you know, that this is a broad spectrum of fight they're having with Russia, not, not a physical fight, but a confrontation that uh, requires them to redeploy forces uh, throughout you know, Southern Europe and Northern Europe, uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, re not just send uh, equipment to Ukraine. So we, we know that that's one thing that NATO is going to be discussing um, in the summit later on this month. Um, but you know, again, <laughs> somebody somebody uh, needs to call Jan Stoltenberg and tell him uh, NATO needs to issue a statement right now. If I were Stoltenberg, I would say this wasn't coordinated with us. Lithuania is on its own. That it, you know they're not going to do that. Let me tell you this, Scott. 
Lithuania apparently said this decision was made after consultations with the European Commission and implemented under its guidance. Uh, here's the other thing. Russia could start cutting off gas. No, Russia, Russia is cutting off gas. I mean, uh, Lithuania is already cut off. Um, you saw them shut down the Turk stream. Uh, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of re- options Russia has. But I, I will say, again, that just to show everybody how serious it is, when Russia says that it will use all means, you know, all means available, that that's like saying we will, you know, the military technical means. They're, Russia will go to war over this issue. That's a statement of truth right there. Russia will go to war over this issue. We've been talking with Scott Ritter, former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. You can follow him on Telegram. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The nation of Colombia is experiencing a dramatic political shift as Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez have won the election. Also, Venezuela's hosting an anti-NATO summit. Joining us to discuss this, we have Sputnik News analyst Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. The preliminary results on the electoral pre-count of the National Registry of Columbia revealed that presidential candidate Gustavo Petro of the Historical Pact is ahead of his opponent, Rodolfo Hernandez of the League of Governors Against Corruption. Joining us now, Wyatt Reed. Wyatt is in Columbia. What's happening on the ground in Columbia, Wyatt Reed? Garland, that's a great question. Thank you again for having me. What's happening here is... Elation uh, is really the culmination of decades of disgust and outrage over neoliberal governments, a kind of colonial feudalism, effectively, that has uh, long subsumed Colombia. All that, uh, to many people, now seems to be, uh, if not over, it's 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 in some ways in the rearview mirror. Uh, we had. With the election of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez yesterday, a very vocal rejection of the kinds of relations that Petro in his victory victory peach described as feudalism. And I think that's not a real exaggeration. Uh, When you look at the kinds of reality that working uh, Colombians have been facing, uh, not just over the past years, but really um, for generations, uh, it's it's hard not to escape the conclusion that people here have effectively been turned into serfs, and when we when we uh, look at the horrible inflation, the horrible economic mismanagement, the horrible corruption, uh, it's not hard to see why, for example, the price of potatoes rose by between ten and twenty percent over the or ten and twenty times, I should say, over the past uh, several years. People who live on a diet, uh, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, potatoes, uh, aren't suddenly unable to afford just this staple of their diet. Uh, And that's really indicative of the kind of broader mismanagement 
of the Colombian economy that has plagued the country for so long under this neoliberal governance. Uh, and all that, you know, as I said, while it's certainly not over, uh, this is not the kind of, of political process that one day to the next suddenly can remove uh, this massive sort of cancer uh, tumor on the Colombian people. Uh, that's not going to happen. But what it does represent uh, to many people here in Colombia and many that I've talked to is kind of the beginning of the end, they hope, of this feudalistic neoliberal government and of this kind of uh, colonial relationship with Washington. So what are your projections now for the region? Because we know what's, what's happened in Venezuela, uh, Ecuador and Peru, uh, Brazil could go this way uh, very, very shortly. So it, it seems as though the pieces are falling one country at a time and we also, and I, as we say on this show all the time, uh, global hegemons don't go quietly into the night. So your projections on what this could mean for the region? Well, it's a huge win for the region in terms of autonomy, in terms of regional integration. It's hard to overstate the impact of the victory of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. This was welcomed by virtually the entire region, uh, even Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, uh, who Gustavo Petro has had some very harsh words for uh, and has used terms like authoritarian to describe. Uh, even Maduro understands uh, that Petro uh, coming to power, even if he isn't best friends with him, um, he wants to normalize relations with Venezuela. Right. And he wants and I think simply to maintain power will have to. Uh, reduce the power of the right-wing paramilitaries that basically uh, run the the eastern coast, the the uh, sorry, the border that the country has with Venezuela, which is massive, right? Uh, so just just by sort of taking away the the resources that uh, that come either directly or indirectly from the state for those kinds of uh, narco gangs or paramilitaries, uh, just by taking those resources away, he effectively will be doing a great blow, dealing a great blow to them. And uh, another important area to examine here is coca cultivation, because historically and especially under uh, now President Joe Biden, who took once claimed credit for basically inventing what was called Plan Colombia, this process by which billions of dollars have been transferred from the U.S. tax base uh, to the Colombian military and uh, Colombian riot police, notorious ESMAD riot police, for weapons uh, and for things like glyphosate so that they can uh, distribute, they can drop tons of this horrible toxic chemical all throughout uh, rural Colombia on coca farms and on coca farmers. Um, so as to ostensibly combat the spread of drugs. Now, uh, those strategies have not succeeded at diminishing the supply of cocaine coming out of Colombia. Colombia continues to be by far the world's greatest supplier of cocaine. Uh, and we can contrast that with its neighbors like Bolivia and Venezuela, uh, who seem to, for whatever reason, not be having those same issues despite having kicked out the DEA many years ago. Draw your own conclusions there. Wyatt, what do you think about the, um, you know, uh, governing um, the, uh, you know, the, the, um, 
you know, Congress or whatever they have there, the parliament, whatever the case may be, how that looks and how that's going to affect his, uh, the ability of uh, the, the uh, Gustavo Petro um, to, to rule or to govern the government, to govern the country. Yeah, that will likely be something of an impediment. The right wing does control the Congress still. Uh, Petro will not have a free hand to pursue uh, any policies that he wishes uh, unimposed. Um, and I think this is probably part of the reason that you see the hand being extended in the victory speech last night. There was not a lot of blame going along. There were a number of attempts to invite the opposition into uh, dialogue and and into uh, efforts to kind of come together and rebuild Colombia. So there's certainly being, uh, whether you want to describe it as careful or tactful uh, or polite, uh, there's certainly being that with regards to the opposition. Uh, it's not a, not a whole lot of vocal criticism. Most of the, the criticisms I, I heard were very much veiled last night. So I think they, they want to include them in this governing process, those that are willing to participate. Um, because, you know, this really, as they said in the speech, this isn't the final destination. This is the beginning of a much, much larger journey. And just to kind of uh, emphasize what this means for working Colombians, yesterday I had the opportunity to interview a woman named Yanni Alejandra Medina, who is the mother of a young kid named, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, named Dylan Cruz, who uh, was an 18-year-old student, hadn't even graduated yet, who was uh, murdered, shot in the head by U.S.-funded anti-riot police, ESMAD, in 2019. And she has since emerged as kind of a voice for the mothers uh, who were put in this uh, similar situation. And uh, Dylan emerged as kind of a symbol for sort of this, this brutal violence, this brutal state-backed violence that was unleashed on people who demanded better from their government. Uh, and she told me yesterday outside uh, the Corferias Voting Center, which is the biggest voting station in all of Colombia, half a million people cast their votes here yesterday. Uh, she explained to me the situation. She said, Esmad shot him in the head for marching peacefully. And so now I'm voting and my vote is for Petro because he is the hope for us, the mothers of the victims of violence. So there's no more impunity in the cases of police violence against our kids. And also because of our hope for a better country where these attacks, these murders of our children don't happen anymore. Uh, and so then I had just a few hours later, I had the honor of, of watching at, at the victory speech and recording her go on stage uh, and actually be brought up. And Petro interrupted his victory speech midway through to give her the word to hand her the microphone so that she could explain what this victory meant uh, for average Colombians. And she said, in the name of my son, Dylan, who was another victim of this country, in the name of all the victims of the false positives, which is the word used for the over 10,000 victims of military and police murder, whose bodies were subsequently presented falsely as guerrilla fighters uh, so that those soldiers and police could cash in on gift cards and other cash rewards. Uh, she said, uh, in the name of all the victims of this government and those before it, 
I raise my voice for my son so there will be justice. And I welcome the new president because the hope for justice for all of us is in you. In you, hope lies for us, the poor and the needy. She said, the black, the white, the rich, the poor, hope for all of us lies in you. Welcome to Colombia, to our new country, Mr. President. So that was a very emotionally inspiring, a touching moment. Uh, I think not just for me, but for really everyone who was in attendance uh, last night to be able to see firsthand just what the victory of Gustavo Petro means for some of the uh, foremost victims of the previous neoliberal governments. I think uh, she spoke for many, many people when she said that she's not going to be terribly sad to see them go. Ornoco Tribune has a piece, Venezuela to host anti-NATO summit. And your thoughts on their hosting of this summit, particularly in the context of the results of this election, as you mentioned earlier, there is some tension uh, between uh, Petro and Maduro. And I'm wondering if their common interests could bring about uh, more um, um, congenial relations. Well, I certainly hope so. And I think that's the intention of the Venezuelan government, of Gustavo Petro. He's obviously said he planned to reestablish relations with Venezuela. And I think you simply cannot address the migration crisis, uh, the drug smuggling issue. None of this can be addressed without having full diplomatic relations between these two countries that share this massive border. Uh, and I think it is a good sign that we saw, for example, President Maduro last night uh, issued a statement in which he said, I congratulate Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez for their historic victory in the presidential elections in Colombia. The will of the Colombian people who came out to defend the path of democracy and peace was heard. New times are in sight for this sister country. That's obviously a very dramatic departure from the kinds of rhetoric that Maduro and the Venezuelan government more generally had traditionally used when describing the Colombian government. You know, puppets of the uh, Yankee imperialists would be a more traditional sort of, of way of referring to them. So I think that's a good sign in terms of this anti-NATO summit. I, I think that that is also a good sign. It's, it's an important development. We see that uh, we had a kind of anti uh, Summit of the Americas that was probably better attended than the actual Summit of the Americas la uh, last or this month, I should say. And that's to me, again, it's, it's a sign of the times. It's a sign of this rising regional integration that is fast approaching a point of no return if it hasn't already been passed. And we know that uh, it's not limited just to get togethers, even, you know, the Brazilians uh, or rather Lula da Silva, who's likely to be the next president of Brazil, has started talking about uh, an alternative currency that would include other Latin American nations. So I think, you know, we're in a critical moment of time, a critical decade where really a lot of the assumptions about what can or cannot happen in this continent a lot of the outdated sort of imperialist assumptions about this whole continent being America's backyard and the Monroe Doctrine, all of that stuff is going out the window. And it's time for the U.S. government to uh, either uh, get with the program or get out of the way. And, you know, these, these, these summits uh, will only continue to 
increase that pressure and to build this kind of momentum uh, in a direction that I certainly don't see reversing anytime soon. We've been talking with Wyatt Reed. He's a Sputnik News analyst on the scene in Columbia. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. NATO officials are arguing that the Ukraine conflict could last for years. Also, Ukrainian President Zelensky is calling for war with China over Taiwan. And Turkey is calling for a summit specifically regarding Finland and Sweden's aspirations to join NATO. Joining us now to discuss this and more, Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. Well, before we get into that stuff, Mark, we got bigger fish to fry. NATO member state Lithuania is now effectively engaged in direct aggression against Russia, Senator Andrei Klimov argued in his Telegram post on Monday, citing Vilnius' decision to stop the transit of sanctioned goods to Russia's enclave of Kaliningrad. Uh, That sounds like something pretty serious, Mark. Your thoughts? Yeah. um, So, yeah, this is... Definitely an escalation pushing us one step closer, yet one step closer to World War III. Um, Kaliningrad is a Russian city that Russia gained as a result of World War II, once a part of Prussia. Uh, It is an exclave um, uh, on the far side of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. It it principally, you know, on the far side of the Baltics. It principally is on the other side of Lithuania. Um, During the Soviet Union, of course, that really didn't make any difference because Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union. But uh, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, its dissolution uh, in 1991, 1992, uh, Kaliningrad has been an exclave, right? A Russian city separated from the rest of the country by land borders, by Lithuania. But there were treaties signed um, between um, Russia and Lithuania. Uh, And again, between Russia and NATO, when Lithuania joined NATO, that guaranteed free transit of goods, supplies, people, etc. across from Russia across trains through Lithuania. Now, uh, it, it should also be mentioned that there are also provisions of international law and the World Trade Organization that say the same thing. Now, Lithuania is trying to extend its its uh, ex- sanctions against uh, a range of vital goods, including energy, um, uh, uh, raw materials, a whole bunch of um, important goods, uh, a- a- accounting for some 60% of overland traffic uh, to Kaliningrad of, of trade 
goods. Um, they're trying to uh, apply their sanctions to it and saying that, well, you can't put it across our territory anymore. Um, and Russia is pointing out that this is against treaties that have been signed with Lithuania, with NATO, uh, are under international law and the World Trade Organization, and that this is effectively putting the Russian exclave under siege by land. Uh, now, it is still possible to get there by sea in the already congested and contested Baltic Sea, uh, at least when it's not uh, frozen over uh, during the winter months. And it is there is a narrow strip of international airspace allowing uh, Russian planes to get there. But it has to be noted that NATO aircraft have been routinely harassing Russian aircraft flying to Kaliningrad for a couple of years now. Uh, and and creating uh, uh, you know diplomatic incidents over it, uh, so Russia is being uh, very uh, heavy on the rhetoric uh, here, and there are Russian politicians not coming directly from the government, but there are Russian politicians um, who are saying that this is a du jour um, declaration of war, that this is also a causus belli, a just cause for war. That's how serious this is. How do the people of Kaliningrad feel about all of this? And also looking at the map and looking at the, the countries bordering, you've got uh, Latvia and Belarus. Uh, where are they in this or do they factor into this uh, as well? Uh, but they don't factor directly into this because this principally concerns the primary train uh, traffic route that delivered uh, goods uh, to and from basically one part of Russia to another. Just no. Well, I guess what I, what I meant. No, what I meant was, and I'm I'm looking at the map, and I if if something were to break out, then then that that's my then they they could very well find themselves collateral damage. Yes, of course. Well, Belarus is part of the union state with Russia and part of the CSTO and would be on Russia's side. And Latvia is, of course, a, a uh, you know, close uh, friend of Lithuania, the, you know, two of the three Baltic nations, and they're both members of NATO. Uh, so they could certainly get dragged into uh, if this would, you know, escalate to the point of, of conflict. Uh, I think everyone hopes that that is not the case, but it, this is just compounding escalation on top of escalation. And we're not quite at that point yet, but there's no clear sign that the escalation spiral is stopping, which is perhaps the really concerning thing. And meanwhile, the NATO chief and among others are saying, oh, this uh, the, the Russian this war on Ukraine could last for years and years and years. Now, if you look at the facts on the ground, the facts on the ground do not seem to align with the argument that this is, you know, that somehow Ukraine is holding out and they'll be able to hold out for years and years and years. Certainly the facts on the ground appears that Russia is advancing at its own pace and that it is having, uh, you know, it's basically going to eventually achieve its goals, which could possibly change depending on things. But what are your thoughts on this business constantly about this could last years and years? Is that rhetoric for the people in the West to keep try to keep this supporting them supporting this thing that's falling apart? I don't know. Your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, I think that's a realistic assessment. I've said as much since the intervention began uh, in February. Um, while 
you know, Russia is making slow but steady progress, beating down these fortifications in East Ukraine, and then moving forward to absorb areas that are already, shall we say, you know, Eastern Ukrainian Russian friendly. As the, you know, um, Russian military moves forward past the Donbass, and I'm almost certain that it will because there won't be any acceptment of a ceasefire by Kiev uh, or its uh, you know, Western backers at that point, then you will increasingly start moving into a less high percentage of the Ukrainian population who are willing to accept the presence of Russian uh, and Donbass troops on their territory. Um, and when you get you know, across the, the Dnieper, when you get into West Ukraine proper past Kiev, I mean, that is a, you know, extremely hostile population for Russia. But there is you know, past the Dnieper, where again, which Kiev is on the west side of that. Uh, so if Russia were, you know, to go so far as to take Kiev, and I don't see how this conflict can be ended at this point without that, there's no clear defensible position there. And I foresee, foresee at least a frozen conflict slash guerrilla war uh, that could go on for the foreseeable future because the regime in Kiev will will not stop. Uh, they're ideologically predisposed towards it. It's, you know, the West Ukrainian population in particular is extremely anti-Russian and NATO uh, will to some degree keep supplying them with arms. This may fall into ceasefires, even temporary armistice uh, along the lines of Korea. Uh, but I, I see some level of conflict going on now essentially forever. I, I think we're looking at a forever war that Russia has just bought with its intervention into Ukraine with no good possibilities otherwise. I think Russia would simply prefer if there is going to be an extended conflict that it be fought in West Ukraine rather than East Ukraine. Ukraine parliament passes new laws seeking to purge Russian culture. The bills forbid playing Russian music and bar the import of Russian books. These were two bills. If Zelensky signs them, it'll be a step towards uh, Kiev's attempt to purge the Russian culture. We know that this was one of the elements that was kind of fueling this entire conflict as uh, Russian speakers in the Ukraine were, I think, prohibited from speaking Russian and other things. So it, it seems as though the Ukrainian parliament is adding fuel to the fire. Yeah, I mean, this is a, just the latest culmination of a long series of both legislation that has been passed and informal uh, pogrom against the Russian ethnic and, shall we say, the Eastern Ukrainian uh, population uh, since this regime seized power in the country in 2014. Uh, this is just one more step along that process. We have seen, you know, uh, we, with Russian uh, uh, language bans in media, we have seen even some of Zelensky's own films that he made in Russian banned in the country as they were filmed, unless they're dubbed over in Ukrainian, uh, because they were made in Russian. And you have to remember that before the conflict, you know, more than half of the Ukrainian population spoke 
Russian on a daily basis. Um, so this is really attempting, you know, what you could call the West Ukrainization of all of Ukraine. And right now, the, the Kiev regime officials, you know, officially call it the de-Russianization. The only problem with that, of course, is one third of you, uh, almost a third of Ukraine's total population is ethnic Russian. And a considerable portion of the rest, particularly in East Ukraine, views Russia as a brother people. And the amount of intermarriage across the border, uh, you know, everyone there has Russian and Ukrainians on both sides of the family. It's really hard to draw a defining line, you know, about who exactly is what. But this is an attempt to force West Ukrainian national identity concept and force it on East Ukraine. And that is, uh, to a large extent, you know, what the Maidan Putsch from 2014 was and has been all about. Zelensky himself has said, if you feel yourself to be Russian, leave the country, go to Russia. That's a big problem when a third of your population no. is actually ethnic Russian. He himself uh, is uh, from a you know Jewish descent, Russian-speaking family in Dnepropetrovsk. Uh, so how he has adopted this view, which he only has espoused since he became president, he certainly didn't say any of this uh, previously during his comedic career. Uh, you know when he was a regular fixture, uh, you know on the comedic tour circuit in Russia and making a great deal of his money in Russia as well. And he certainly didn't say that in his election campaign. We're just about out of time. Mark. Well, thanks a lot. As always, another great appearance. We're talking with Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden is traveling to the Middle East to meet with the leader of Saudi Arabia. Also, Israel is continuing to push for a confrontation with Iran. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have James Carey. James is the host of the Left is Dead podcast, which you can find at leftisdead.com. James, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Always good to be here. Middle East Eye, we find an article that says after months of back and forth, U.S. President Joe Biden appears to have finally made up his mind to go to Saudi Arabia in July to meet Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. His first presidential trip to the Middle East comes at a time of heightened tensions as anti-Iran hawks in the Gulf and Israel are lobbying Washington to abandon talks on the nuclear deal and confront Iran head on. The real reality, however, is that there is no military solution to the Iran issue. James Carey, your thoughts? Uh, no, you're right. There is no military solution. And I think that um, what's going on here is we're seeing in the face of a crisis, mainly, you know, inflation and gas prices here and everything like that. We're seeing the uh, American government go and not typically as they do with Israel, but also with the Gulf states who had recently been uh, kind of shifting negotiating partners as far as sanctioning Russia and things like that. But we're seeing the U.S. take the short-term solution of 
dealing with the devil they know than the one they don't. So we're going to jump back into bed by conceding a bunch of things to these Gulf states. And I think that Biden is preparing to go do that because uh, he's got to prove that he's just as loyal as Trump was when it comes to this. And this is his chance to do so after the Ukraine uh, conflict broke out. And I, I think this is just, again, short-term solution will lead to a long-term problem. We'll be here again. But I think we're getting ready to see a temporary normalization again. So, James, uh, Senator Biden, as a candidate, told us that Bin Salman was disgusting and that he was not going to deal with the man. And so he tells reporters on Friday that he's not going to Saudi Arabia to meet with Mohammed bin Salman. He's uh, going to an international meeting and Salman is going to be part of the meeting. So that that's that's like my parents telling me, Wilmer, don't go to that party. Oh, no, I'm not going to the party. I'm going to the house where the party is being held, but I'm not going to go to the party. That that doesn't that doesn't pass the laugh smell the laugh giggle or smell tests. No, and I I mean they're the host country. This is ridiculous, but I, I enjoy it. The idea of define what meeting is, you know what I mean? Um, or what but, is is? Yeah, that's exactly it. It goes back to the Clinton stuff, doesn't it? This is the, this is the new Democrats. Um, but yeah, I think that that's it's obviously inevitable, and I, it was inevitable to begin with. We knew. From when Biden came into office, I mean, there was attempts to reach out to Saudi Arabia multiple times, especially as things heated up in Ukraine. And every time Biden was kind of, you know, rebuffed by this guy because he had been on the campaign trail uh, talking about Khashoggi and all these things that, you know, we don't we we recently talked about reporters being killed. And this is something that the U.S. doesn't actually care about. Um, But, you know, there's some popular sentiment against both Israel and Saudi Arabia in the U.S. now. But I, I don't think that. Biden wants to admit that he's going to have to do business with the Saudis because the only other choice would be doing business with Iran, and they're afraid to do that. Um, it's, it's obviously it doesn't matter. This is a meeting hosted by the Saudis to try and get defense cooperation to from the U.S. in exchange for you know helping pump oil back into our markets, which we desperately need right now. Even if they don't sit in a closed off room together. This is a meeting between the U S and Saudi Arabia and between their two heads of state. You know, it doesn't matter the context. Um, Mohammed bin Salman and Joe Biden are the two biggest players that people need to hear the decisions from in this meeting. I think it's also important to remember that bin Salman and Biden can be sitting at the same table across from each other and never say a word. It's their assistants that are meeting in the back room. That's where all the real dialogue, negotiation, and conversation takes place. It's not when, by the time those two guys stand together and talk, the decisions have already been made. Yeah, and look how the talks were restarted, right? Brett McGurk just dropped off uh, some recommendations in the UAE while he was on his way home from another trip, and that kick-started these negotiations. So it's the negotiations to negotiate were already done before Joe Biden ever, you know, had a plan to go to Saudi Arabia. Well, James, it also seems to me Saudi Arabia has already made some decisions. They've they came out and said, look, 
We're, when the U.S. was like, we want you to sanction Russia, recently Saudi Arabia said, look, Russia's in the OPEC plus one. We're supporting the OPEC, OPEC countries. They were pretty blunt. They also recently contemplated, in recent months, contemplated selling oil to China for the yuan and announced a gigantic project where they're building some giant refinery in a joint project with China. So – Biden's here, but it seems to me that even Saudi Arabia, a country that we had our, you know, claws in, the U.S. has already lost grip, lost the grip to Russia and China. I'll put it like this. It seems like the Saudis are like looking long term and saying, you know, I kind of think I see who the winners are going to be here and I'm going with them. I think there's a balance that they try to walk, right? There's a balance between how much business will you do with the East and then like, um, you know, as we see that Saudis are making up with uh, the Turks right now, but there is a combination of two of the greatest states at holding stuff over the United States head in order to make them do what they want. So I think another part of this is, um, you know, it's trying to extract it, any sort of concessions from the Biden administration by threatening to do these things. As you said, uh, the Saudis considered trading oil with China and Iran, but do we know if that'll happen? Who knows? Um, the Turks were probably considering buying the S-400s until it was too late and they realized they weren't getting the F-35s anymore and they probably regretted it. But I think that this is, it's a matter of one, yes, there are people who are going to want to do business with the East. Um, the U.S. is not going to be able to call the shots internationally anymore. We see that in Ukraine. This is no Iraq where, you know, we force everyone to just kind of accept a unilateral war. And um, But at the same time, these countries know how much we need them. They still rely heavily on our business. And I think this is a real good way for them to just get a stronger bargaining position because look at how desperate we are that we are back in Saudi Arabia. You know, Joe Biden is going to Saudi Arabia after, you know, the refusal to cooperate on Ukraine. And he's going to be begging them for the oil. So, you know, let's start the flow of oil back here. This is a pretty common tactic. And I don't know how long, whether it's permanent or not, because I think that, um, the dealings with Israel will probably tie Saudi Arabia much closer to the West than they'd like to be. But I think that they'll have to go that way. And um, I think that, I don't know, it's, it's just a matter of push and pull, right? It's walking a fine line of whether, you know, you get kicked off the U.S. allies list, which I don't see happening, or whether you get what you want out of them, which continues to happen, doesn't it? There's a piece in Responsible Statecraft. Will will new U.S.-Israel-Arab security pacts leave Iran with a bad hand? And one of the things that they that that they talk about is that what this could really do to the Palestinian question, which they say in the in this article that that has really just dropped off the map. Well, I don't know what map the authors of this article are really looking at because. Things there on the ground seem to be ratcheting up, not not falling off the radar. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that's the thing, though, is more countries kind of sign off on the violence that Israel carries out. Israel's feeling they have a much more free hand to do so, even as smaller countries with less money obviously always criticize them. And you had the Iraqi parliament vote that they won't be doing any business with Israel. But I think the thing is, is that Israel just the Palestinians are just going to be thrown under the bus for concessions around Iran. And I think that, um, yeah, we see that changing in the higher tiers of society in the Gulf. But my question is for the Gulf states is what do they think they're going to do about the culture of you know their people? I mean, you go read a Saudi textbook from before like four years ago, and it's not going to have great things to say about Israel. 
or, you know, Jewish people in general, probably. But um, I think that if you look at this, how they, they plan to change the culture, uh, you know, the Saudis have had to stop payments to Palestinians from individual citizens. They've tried to cut off com- communication between Saudis and Palestinians. Um, they, the cause has already been thrown under the bus by the Gulf states, and it has been for a long time. I mean, when have we really seen any strong support? And now it is Iran and this resistance bloc that's growing uh, from there to Lebanon and Syria and to Iraq, obviously, uh, we see this kind of coming together as a new support poll for the Palestinians because clearly the Gulf states are going to throw it under, and I don't, uh, they're in cooperation with the Turks now. I mean, they're, just, they're trying to patch that back up. This is a big coalition that's going to be pushing on Iran, and that's the thing. This is not, how are you going to call it defensive when Israel is always saying Iran is about to attack? This is going to be a coalition that is, exists to put more pressure on Iran. Yeah, and it also seems to me that um, Iran is growing as part of the block with, you know, the expanded BRICS, the G8, et, et cetera. So Iran is looking to the east um, kind of to become not not just the regional power in the Middle East, but part of a world, a part of a block of world economic powers, James. Yeah, definitely. They're definitely seeking to integrate east because why wouldn't they? I mean, we've you know, we went and made these negotiations with them, and then we tore them up, and now we've basically, you know, sabotaged them again in favor of, like I said, going with the short-term solution, the devil we know over in the Gulf. And uh, I think that Iran sees that, you know, there's no political capital here for somebody to try and actually make a deal with them, despite the fact that it would probably be more intelligent to do so because they don't have as many things to hold over us as the Saudis do, and you could actually have some type of competition in the oil market, which is the big thing. But Iran sees that there's just no political will in the United States to either make a deal or should we make one, keep one. So why wouldn't they, you know, start fully integrating into the East? Because they're, unlike Saudi Arabia or Turkey or anyone like that, their hands aren't tied by any connections to the West. You know, they tried. They tried to make deals with us, but we wouldn't do so or we just scrapped them. So I think that this is inevitable, mostly from our decisions. And there's another piece in Middle East Eye, Biden Middle East visit why an Israel-led security pact is a paper tiger. Uh, your thoughts there? I just, yeah, I think that um, it's going to be tough to create any type of real cooperation between these powers. Uh, I think there's going to be, inter- there's internal contradictions, right? There's the Saudis giving up on Palestine. There's the Israelis working with people who have hated them for cent- you know, decades uh, since the state existed. And then there's the issue of Qatar. I mean, I think Qatar is going to be pushed to be the sort of uh, basically the messenger of bad news for Iran coming from this coalition. And I think that internal interests, you know, that conflict with each other are going to sort of get this kill this thing before it ever really gets off the ground. But at the same time, I mean, that it'll be there. And unfortunately, the biggest effect will be the Palestinian cause going under because it's like the Israeli governing coalition right now. They can't govern together forever. We've seen them fall apart already. So I think that this is going to be the same thing. The GCC itself can't operate together, you know, so throwing Israel in the mix is going to make it even harder. We've got about two minutes. Where do you think the Syria fits in, particularly with Israel, you know, launching these attacks on Syria? Russia starting to bristle a bit back towards that. What are your thoughts on Syria? Uh, got about a minute and a half. I think Syria will definitely be a front as far as this goes, because that is the only front they can access, right? They can't really get at Hezbollah in Lebanon. They can't really get to 
Iran, obviously. They can't even get to Iraq, for that matter. They can operate in the areas where the U.S. controls, but they're not doing so hot in the rest of Iraq. They're hanging out in Kurdistan, you know, uh, as far as Israeli covert operations go. Um, I don't. I think Syria will be the most visible front because it's the only place where any real strikes can be done against any assets that you could call Iranian. Even Yemen doesn't have that type of visible support from Iran, whether you think they do or not, you receive support, but they don't have anything visible like that. So I think Syria will probably be, honestly, it'll just become a, an arms show and a place for um, a theatrical battle against whatever they consider, Israel considers Iranian forces in the nation. Can these Gulf states trust the United States in the wake of the United States reneging on the Iran nuclear deal? I think the trust there is a little bit stronger, yeah. I think that they can trust us to always do what they want, because clearly we just threw the nuclear deal back under the bus in favor of them. So why not? James Carey is a host of the Left is Dead podcast, and you can find that at leftisdead.com. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. There are currently great dangers being created by the U.S. attempt to enforce its hegemonic Monroe Doctrine on the entire planet. Also, Vijay Prashad argues that the U.S. is trying to use military force to compensate for its declining economic power. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and at Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. V.J. writes, in threatening to bring Ukraine into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the U.S. was prepared to risk crossing what it knew to be the red lines of the nuclear-armed state of Russia. This raises two questions. Why has the U.S. undertaken this escalation, and how far is the U.S. now prepared to go in the use of military force against not only the global South, but major powers such as China or Russia? Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts? Well, it's an excellent article, and, you know, you it's the nail on the head. Uh, this worldwide Monroe Doctrine is American imperialism. Uh, we had a situation after World War II where there was a kind of stalemate. You know, it's very important to, to, to recognize there was a great book by Michio Kaku, the physicist, who wrote a book called To Win a Nuclear War about how the United States has never stopped trying to get a first strike capability against Soviet Union. That was their purpose. That was their military strategy. But there was a stalemate there. Soviet Union quickly developed nuclear weapons. The United States could not attack the Soviet Union and risk getting a nuclear uh, nuclear retaliation. And eventually, uh, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, there were arms control agreements that limited the possibility of a nuclear war. And everybody recognized there was no first-strike capability on either side. Since the demise of the Soviet Union, the United States has again, you know, it lost, the world lost what the U.S. everybody saw as a near-peer competitor, as someone who could challenge the United States. The United States was on top of the world economically, thought it was the hyperpower, not just the superpower, economically and militarily. And to some extent, that was true. And they developed this policies in 1992. We cannot allow any, Wolfowitz policy, we cannot allow any 
and even in a region, a power to, to, to become strong enough to stop us doing what we want in any region of the world. And that's, the, that's been the case. Now, that's, the, that's degraded. In the last 20 years, the Soviet, the Russia and China have certainly developed China economically to a great extent and overtaken even the United States in terms of purchasing power parity, I think. And Russia and China have, to, Russia especially, has developed very strong military force. But the United States doesn't accept this. <laughs> they still think, they're thinking like it's, you know, they're, they're partying like it's 1999. And they think they are the hyperpower. And they're not accepting the fact that they've weak, they're weaker economically than, and, and on the decline. And they're... The ability to make military threats is very real, but it's only an ability to destroy things, and nobody wants to see that. So it's a very dangerous situation because essentially it's whether or not the United States is going to accept a retreat from its position in the world. And that's something I think some players, some important players in Washington are not willing to do. And Vijay, in his piece, says that there are two questions. One, why has the U.S. undertaken this escalation? And how far is the U.S. prepared to go? And he says the answer to why is clear. The U.S. has lost in peaceful economic competition to developing countries in general and China in particular. And with that, I think it's important for people to understand that to a great degree, the United States lost because it advocated its responsibilities from a manufacturing perspective. It outsourced in, in, in the pursuit of greater profit, it outsourced what at one point was a dominant manufacturing economic position in order to find the cheapest labor possible. And now the United States, as they would say at uh, when I was in high school at, at Christian Brothers High School in Sacramento, we've become a victim of our own event. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, as a Marxist, you know, the economic power, economic force is the is the basis of power, really. And military power without it is, is, is kind of hollow, in a, in a sense, socially hollow. And what happened is the United States did outsource its manufacturing capability, the real value-adding capability of the economy, and turned into a financialized economy, an economy which is about money and speculation, not about production of useful goods and services. And that, you know, China's taken up that uh, forefront of that alternative. So still... They're spending all the money, so they have nothing left but military supremacy now. So on the one hand, that's why it's happening, because the United States is getting weaker economically, but still is the strongest country militarily, so it's going to use its military. But I'll go back and say also, again, why it's happening is because a lot of people who run things in Washington don't believe it's happening. <laughs> they think that they, they still, the United States still has all the power and all the dominant power it had in 1999, you know? And 1992, 1993, and it doesn't anymore. So that's a, one of the big things here is that people believe in a kind of delusional notion of what the United States position is in the world. And the real important question there, again, not the only, not the, the real, but one of the real important words, how far is it going to go? That's, we don't know. And that's the danger, because if they go along with their own delusional notion that they, that they have the power to force everybody to do everything that they want, they're going to run not only themselves, but everybody in the world into a, a a wall that is going to crush everybody. You know, the other thing, Jim, is when you say I should be in charge, the question is why? 
Why should I run everything? Because everybody chose me, you know, democracy, because I'm the toughest guy, which means I have the biggest military or the biggest, the, the most, uh, you know, pow, pow, powerful economy. We're seeing that as, you know, time and time again, people say, you know, the, the analysts say, well, right now the U.S. does not have the military wherewithal to confront Russia on its border, to confront China on its border. Actually, confronting Iran in the Middle East and the U.S. would take a bloody nose that it really, the people wouldn't be prepared to do. So why am I, uh, why do I have a right to rule the world? It appears to me that the neocons or the people who are kind of running this monster feel like they have like a divine right to rule. Almost like that God said, America, you are the ruler of the world. And regardless of what happens with your economy or anything else, you have this divine right to rule over everyone. Your thoughts, Jim? Oh, that's so good. I mean, because this is the point. They have to present themselves as having a moral virtue that nobody else has. That The word democracy becomes this kind of this robe they wrap themselves in, which demonstrates how you know, good, how much better they are in a deep moral sense than the rest of the world. And this is why the leadership problem is so crucial for the Americans. They don't want a Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, they want a Barack Obama because he presents that image to the world. They want someone who can kind of con the world into believing that we're the good guys in some sense that everybody wants to believe. So, you know, they don't, someone like Trump isn't like that. Biden is incapable of it. He's Obviously incompetent. If you're going to say we have the right to run the world, you have to say we have the competence to run the world, and we have to you have to demonstrate something in in, in person in the leadership that shows that exemplifies what a wonderful country you are. So that's why this is a huge crisis for the United States because there's nobody, <laughs> there's nobody out there who's going to do that anymore. You know, even Obama couldn't do it again. Uh, and uh, but so that's why there's going to be you know, uh, terrible infighting about the, who's going to be the president, who's going to be the leadership, what it's going to look like. Because what they have now is something that really d doesn't have any respect in anybody's eyes, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden and the, the Nancy Pelosi. VJ writes, seeking to maintain unipolar global dominance, the U.S. is increasingly substituting peaceful economic competition with military force. And to support this position, he quotes uh, a, a speech by Tony Blinken back in May uh, where Blinken openly admitted the U.S. does not seek military equality but military supremacy. Uh, two things. One it seems as though the United States is doing now to itself with this military buildup what the United States uh, tried to do to the Soviet Union during the Reagan administration, and that is make the cost of this uh, so expensive that the economic pressure to, to stay parallel or in parity with the military in Russia would, would collapse the economy. So it seems as though the United States is, is doing that to itself the other element of this, to me, is there's a difference in strategy here, and that is the United States is using its military buildup as an offensive tactic, where China and Russia are using their military buildups as defensive tactics. And so they're going to be very well positioned to defend themselves when the United States thinks it can traverse thousands of miles away from its border and, and, and try to start a fight in, in places where they, we are now in other people's backyards. 
Yeah, well, all good points. I mean, again, you know, spending all your resources on military power and not having the real economy and the real economy of producing goods and services is a hollow hollow man. And it's going to eventually under, especially if you have, if you have declining social security for the population, you're losing the population. I don't have to, RT doesn't have to foment discord or discontent in the United States. This is happening by virtue of the, the structural economic, socioeconomic development of the United States that spending money on weapons doesn't do anything for it. But it does, you know, there are certainly economic interests that are the ones who benefit from it. But your point is also important that I think people have to recognize that Russia and China, the United States has a military that's been built up over 70 years to project power, power projection. That's what all those aircraft carrier groups are for, like 13, 14 aircraft carrier groups. Those are floating bases, and they have almost 1,800, 900 military bases around the world. The United States has a, produced its military through its military a means to project power around the world and occupy Syria and uh, any country, Afghanistan for 20 years. Whatever power, the military power of the Soviet Union and the Russia and China have is designed to protect itself in its region and on its borders and to make sure nobody can get in. They don't have the ability that the United States has to transport 100,000 troops and supply them for 20 years, 10,000 miles away, and not seeking it. But they are have they do have the ability uh, both uh, to uh, defend their borders and the regions around them, and also to strike at the United States if necessary via long range weapons. Uh, but you know they're not power projection militaries, and that's something that people have to recognize. You know, and it's just, it's a it's an important difference in strategy. Jim, uh, last thing I'd like to ask you about is. Um, the issue of internal uprisings. While the neocons are the Russians and the Iran and blah, 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 you know, you hear what's going on day to day in the street today. People are furious over the gas prices, over significant reduced stand, uh, uh, living standard. We got two minutes. Your thoughts on the issue of internal uprising, screwing up their plan to be hegemonic around the world? Well, as I said, they're losing credibility and they're losing confidence and they're losing support. I mean, people can't not notice that, oh, we can't do Medicare for all. Oh, we can't flip a switch and have child tax credits. Oh, we can't flip a switch and do this. Oh, flip a switch, $54 billion to Ukraine, another billion and a half dollars every month to Ukraine. What are you talking about? To put people in and literally saying, we're going to have to put some money in people's pockets in Ukraine. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, people notice this. I got to pay through the nose for gas. I can't go to the doctor. My children, I can't bring my children to the doctor, but we can spend $54 billion in Ukraine to have Ukrainians put money in their pockets. What are you talking about? And this is going to be even worse in Europe, obviously, because, you know, go collect your sticks for, for fuel. You can't afford the electricity or, 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 or heat. So look what's happened in, in, in uh, France with the parliamentary elections. There are going to be political and social, uh, social upheaval and political upheaval throughout the world. It's amazing to everybody. So many people have said this over the past 10 years in the United States. I can't believe American workers aren't revolting. Sooner or later, they will. We've been talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Follow him on Twitter. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Philadelphia chapter of the Poor People's Campaign and the Black Alliance for Peace are coming together to call for a radical break from the status quo of incrementalism. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Margaret Kimberly. She's the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report. You can find that at blackagendareport.com and author of a great book that's called Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. PopularResistance.org has a great article. You can find it there. It says, calling for a radical break with the status quo of incrementalism. While Democrats march around in Washington, D.C., pretending they care about quality of life for poor people, it's important to remember who actually walks the walk as opposed to just talking the talk. Margaret Kimberly. Yeah, it, this, was, uh, this was a statement, um, well, a press conference be, uh, with the Black Alliance for Peace and Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign. And basically, uh, both groups reiterate uh, what they've always um, had as their mission. Black <clears throat> Alliance for Peace is an uh, anti-imperialist um, uh, peace group with, obviously, you can tell from the name, from a, a black African orientation. Uh, Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign does... Uh, real grassroots work on the ground uh, work in Philadelphia, um, uh, helping the homeless, taking over houses, empty houses for uh, unhoused uh, people. And they're announcing that they're having a, what they're calling a boot camp in Philly in uh, August. But they talked about the, the model of people-centered human rights, which uh, doesn't depend on the electoral process, doesn't depend on big funders. Uh, it's a, a, a means of bringing about change uh, for uh, people all over the country, actually all over the world. It's centering just what it says. It centers the needs of people. So for uh, uh, the Poor People's Army, um, it's, um, it's providing housing. It's providing uh, food. Black Alliance for Peace, the stances uh, um, that uh, BAP takes are always about the needs of humanity around the world, which are um, uh, almost never, uh, those, uh, those needs never um, actually um, are those of the state. So it's um, uh, a declaration of uh, the work that both groups do and uh, their intention to, to amplify uh, what they've been doing for years. As part of this statement, it says, we are moving forward in the tradition of other forward-thinking pioneers and ancestors. We are building a poor people's army. Today, we confirm our commitment to building this poor people's army and ask you for your support in doing that. We know uh, Dr. King's uh, poor people's uh, campaign and the march that uh, he was going to lead on Washington, D.C. We know how uncomfortable that made the United States government. So what are your concerns or what do you foresee as it relates to the government's concern and particularly as it relates around coalitions being formed to move these issues forward? Well, I, you know, uh, you have to have coalitions in order to move uh, these issues forward. There are many organizations doing good work, people doing good work, but none of them can accomplish any, any of these things on their own. 
And uh, I think it's very important that to have this statement that incrementalism reform, de- depending on the uh, electoral process, is just not going to cut it. That look at where we are now. Look at where we are with uh, uh, even people who do work. Half of all American workers are are low income. Um, the uh, the rising prices. Um, you know, what do you get from the Democrats, the party that's allegedly on the side of uh, the people? What are they? All they do is talk about Putin's price hike or or something else uh, nonsensical, while people are um, are suffering. So this is um, uh, this is a very important coalition. Both groups have uh, a long uh, history of doing good work, and so I think it could be a model of uh, how to address these these issues, which seem to be so difficult to solve. And I um, I think they're most difficult to solve because people look in the wrong direction for help. If this person wins, if this party's in, then we'll be okay. But what are the Democrats doing? They just got, didn't they just get rid of uh, school lunches? They had free school lunch for everybody for the past two years since the pandemic started. And now, poof, it's gone, like so many, like the child tax credit, like uh, other things. Um, I noticed something here that uh, that, that I, I, you know, knowing that the Black Alliance for Peace was around, I know these types of statements are going to be made. And this is in the Kensington area of Philadelphia. How dare we stand by as billions are spent on war when children all over the world and here in Kensington go without water, health care, food or a place to lay their heads tonight? You know, Margaret, as we look now, the Congress, the Senate just marked up a budget. Joe Biden asked for eight hundred and thirteen billion dollars. Congress marked it up to eight over eight hundred and fifty billion dollars at a time when I mean we could go on and on sixty billion dollars for intelligence another sixty two billion dollars for military intelligence two hundred and fifty billion for the so-called countering China uh, program I mean on and on and on and we have people in America that are homeless and struggling Margaret. Yeah, it's you know the uh, the struggling people are collateral damage. They uh, you know they um, uh, you know it doesn't matter, seem to matter how many failures they have. They go back to the well. So Ukraine blows up in your face. We'll start something with China. Okay, we'll start from something with China. Well, surely uh, Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas, et cetera, will need more money. Uh, and this is where both parties stand. And that's another reason incrementalism has to go. This idea that there's a, uh, you know, a kinder, gentler neoliberal or a kinder, gentler imperialist uh, has to uh, be uh, uh, rejected. And all of this money, uh, you know, if, if there's anything for people, we're always told that it's too much. And we're always given some explanation of how Congress really works and, um, you know, why you can't have anything for uh, that benefits uh, the, um, uh, the average working uh, person. But they can, as you just said, add more money all the time to the defense budget, but that is what the system demands. And that's one of the re- reasons that incrementalism and reform are, are, um, uh, should be rejected because the system uh, um, 
It actually depends upon impoverishing people. It depends upon having a population that's uh, living in precarity. It needs to have people who are uh, unhoused. It's not just that they don't care, and they don't care, but their system actually, in order to operate, has to say we're not doing anything for those people. So it's this kind of... uh, radicalism, I'll, I'll call it that. I'm not uh, afraid of the word. It's a good word. It's that kind of uh, radicalism that's needed at this time. You use the word uh, precarity, and that made me think about Guy Standing's book, uh, The Precariat, which I think is a, a very good uh, reference for people to go to. Uh, they're, they're going to be holding a boot camp in Philadelphia, August 12th through the 14th. Can you talk a bit about the agenda, uh, what's what's going to be taking place at the boot camp. And they also talk about mapping out plans that are going to educate people around a people's-centered human rights model. Right. Well, you know, um, the, the Poor People's Army, which is uh, a part of the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, uh, they're going to teach other people how to do what they've been doing for years. Uh, if a house is abandoned, they'll go in and, and put people in. Um, they have a very um, uh, sophisticated model of, of mutual aid and uh, getting people food. Um, and it's a very uh, uh, one-on-one, very personal model of giving people help as soon as they need it. And um, uh, that is what they will be doing in their boot camp, trying to replicate what they've done. Uh, these issues of uh, uh, people being unhoused, people not having food insecurity, all of these things are happening all over the country. And what they hope to do is replicate what they've been doing in, uh, in Philly for a long time. But being people-centered is just that. Uh, policy should be centered on the people. How are you helping people? And uh, if you ask that simple uh, question, then you have um, uh, organizations like these, grassroots organizations who don't spend their time uh, begging politicians who don't want to help or going to uh, people with money who have an agenda. There's no free lunch. So uh, uh, to go to someone who's willing to give money, but uh, they tell you that you can't do what it is you plan to do is um, something that just uh, subverts um, this um, this cause. So that is what they're going to be talking about uh, at the boot camp. There's a statement from Pastor Keith Collins where he says, why is it that we reject the charity model? The reason is simple. Charity is vertical. Charity is from the top down. And in charity, the people are on the top who are on the top remain on the top. The people that are on the bottom usually remain on the bottom or very close to the bottom. He says solidarity is always horizontal. It respects all those around you and respects each other, each person as our equal. Margaret, your thoughts? Yeah, that's um, uh, something that they have um, uh, also uh, perfected over the years. It's uh, it's um, um, decisions being made by consensus and uh, decisions being made that um, uh, actually meet the, uh, the very, very basic needs of people. We're talking about the hierarchy of needs, right? The uh, uh, that foundation. And uh, charity, as, as I was pointing out about foundations or NGOs or getting grants, all of those things, they always come with strings attached. And talk about top down, nobody bites the hands that, uh, that feed, right? Uh, 
So uh, uh, often I've seen groups start out doing something good, and then they are taken off track by someone who is um, allegedly helping them. So that is the issue with charity, and that is why um, solidarity is their model. We have just about two minutes left. There's also a statement here. One has to make a choice. You you are either with the people all the way or with the enemies of human rights, democracy, and global social justice. That makes me think about the great contradictions between what uh, then-presidential candidate Joe Biden ran on versus the politics that we have seen come out of the Biden administration. Yeah, it's um, it, it it makes me very angry when I think about all the lies. Let's just let's just cut to the chase and call them lies that uh, uh, Biden told in order to get elected. They know what people want. They know what people need. That's why they tell the lies. Um, but uh, the goal is just to get into office and uh, then talk about being a lesser evil or a harm reducer or any of those um, uh, those other words that are used to um, to fool people, but uh, obviously these two groups they they know what's what and uh, they are uh, rejecting um, that um, failed model. Well, they sure can't fool Margaret Kimberly because Margaret Kimberly is the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Presidential Black America and the Presidents. Go to blackagendareport.com for more. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The St. Petersburg International Economic Forum and the new Eurasian-led G8 may be setting the stage for a new world economic order. Joining us now to discuss this matter and more, we have Dr. David Walalu. He's an author and international security analyst. Dr. Walalu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Pleasure to be with you. You know, before we get into that, there's a big story that is quite concerning. The NATO NATO member state, Lithuania, is now effectively engaged in direct aggression against Russia. Senator Andrei Klimov argued in his Telegram post on Monday, citing Vilnius' decision to stop the transit of sanctioned goods to Russia's enclave of Kaliningrad. And in fact, we look on TASS. They say that Russia reserves the right to take action to protect its national interests. This could be a very dangerous situation. Your thoughts, Dr. Walalu? That will be a major one, Garland, uh, because this is an almost like an attack economic, shall we say, if Lithuania moves forward with this action, because that's usually where the passage of the natural gas goes through. The pipeline there to head out through Ukraine all the way, all way to Europe and so forth. Uh, where the issue, the major issue with this has to be considered within the context of now Germany, as an example. Germany now is uh, the Minister of Economy is asking the Germans now to reduce the consumption of electricity. Why? Because the shortage of gas. So if Lithuania moves forward with that uh, sort of uh, blockade, shall we say, Russians will have no other option but to react. And I believe they will react forcefully because now you're dealing with a national interest 
that's going to be jeopardizing, jeopardizing uh, uh, Russian interests, especially when it comes down to energy. We've asked this of a couple of other guests and would like to get your take on this. Jens Stoltenberg, the director of NATO, says that uh, he is anticipating this conflict to go on for quite a while. Do you think he was speaking specifically about Ukraine and possibly this being bogged down and becoming a guerrilla war? Or do you think that this was some kind of Floyd, uh, Fro Fro Freudian slip where he was indicating that uh, NATO is going to engage in activities in other countries, such as such as uh, 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 Kaliningrad, that are going to result in Russia engaging in conflict. I, I think well, Martin, he was being very elusive in that statement. It was for specific reasons as to why he didn't want to come forward by stating regarding the Ukraine crisis, for example, or the possibility of uh, uh, Sweden and Finland joining the, 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 the alliance. So he wanted to stay vague. But if I am to assess it as a geopolitical analyst, I would say he is talking about long term here. This is not about just Ukraine thing, because there are already conversations behind some closed doors that I came across to that the idea now of uh, uh, is it time to be done with the comedian Zelensky and move forward? <laughs> <laughs> this is what the United States is thinking as we speak, regardless of what you hear, regardless of what you see on the on the TV screens and so forth. There's now forward thinking as to this is, is going to escalate even beyond what the West was anticipating or expecting. So the, the Secretary General uh, Stoltenberg's statement, in my opinion, is a reflection of what lies ahead moving forward. And, uh, and to me personally, I will put the context of uh, Sweden, I will put the context of Finland, uh, because you are already seeing cracks inside the alliance like, for example, uh, Hungary, for example. Well, Hungary is not going to be impacted, for example, with the Russia's uh, uh, um, cutting down the deliveries of gas. Hungary is going to be receiving the same amount, no questions asked. But other countries, like the Dutch, like the uh, uh, Finland, like Poland, uh, uh, Bulgaria, you know, they're all going to be hammered. Germany, of course, now with the decision of the uh, Russians, the Gazprom, to really shut down the, the uh, Nord Stream 1 for some maintenance till about two or three weeks from now. Pepe Escobar writes, St. Petersburg sets the stage for the war of economic corridors. In St. Petersburg, the world's new powers gather to upend the U.S. concocted rules-based order and reconnect the globe their way. Very interesting. Your thoughts on that, Dr. Walalu? Well, that's very, very an interesting statement. I mean, when I wrote the book on Russia back then, I kind of started to sort of uh, anticipate what possible landscape, geopolitical that is, and economics is going to look like. And I've always argued, and I still argue today, that Central Asia is going to be the key. Like, like throughout history, as we said one time uh, on your show here, Galen, that, you know, throughout uh, empires, it was because of their presence in the Central Asia that they were able to dominate. And it was also their lack of presence in Central Asia that they weren't able to, to maintain that power. And it's happening as we speak. Because what, you will, what your listeners need to know is that 
the economic corridor that's going to link, for example, Iran, India, and Russia. You, and you add to that, of course, China, because you can't ignore that. You can just see where it's headed and where it's going. So to those on the West, in the West, they say, like I saw this morning from the former ambassador to uh, Russia, McFarland, saying, well, the free world leaders needs to put uh, Putin uh, to the end from not dominating other countries. That's nonsense. Why is it nonsense? It's because the reality on the ground suggests that the geopolitical landscape has shifted from a unipolar to a multipolar. And, 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 and it's a fait accompli. There is no wishy-washy about it. And we should sort of hit on the reality as is and, and deal with that new change on the global stage. Pepe Escobar writes that the St. Petersburg offered several engrossing discussions, uh, three themes. One, the scope of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, two aspects of the Russia-China Strategic Partnership, and what's ahead for the BRICS. And he also talks about the coming of this new G8 for BRICS plus Iran, Indonesia, Turkey, and Mexico. That's that is the, I think, the, the, the cutting edge of, of a new economic order that the United States just will not be able, A, to control, let alone compete with. Yeah. And if I may add to that, Wilmer, the, uh, the outcome of the elections in Latin America recently in Colombia, that's going to just, because Brazil will be next, you can just see where this is going. And this is what bothers me personally as an American that our foreign policy establishments are like blind to the reality and the facts on the ground for them to craft very effective policies. And they are pretending like these changes are not happening. What they are happening, you look at the case of the BRICS, for example, the Brazil, China, India, uh, Russia, and South, uh, South Africa. You know, if, for example, which, by the way, Saudi Arabia expressed interest so just hypothetically, let's go with the hypothetical here. If Saudi Arabia joined the BRICS, what are you going to have within that organization? You're going to have two most oil producers in the world, Russia and Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, within the same club, you have the two most consuming markets in the world, India and China. So you can just see where it's going, because the BRICS in this case is going to now carry a lot of weight, economically speaking. You take the Shanghai uh, uh, G8, that's the upcoming meeting for them. So all this, and, and you add to that the three regional economics that China is working on with its neighbors. So you can just see where it's going. That's going to leave us, the Americans, with nothing to show for because we will be impacted one way or another, especially when it comes down to uh, prices of goods that we bring from China and so forth. Russian gas giant Gazprom announced Saturday it will stop gas delivery via both strings of the Turkish stream pipeline from June 21st to 28th due to scheduled annual maintenance. Earlier this week, Gazprom said it would significantly reduce gas delivery to Europe via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, citing the failure of Siemens, the manufacturer of the gas turbine engines, to provide the overhaul service in time. I certainly feel that some of these things are manufacturing and what they say, but you kind of have the feeling, Dr. Walalu, that that mm -hmm. there are other things, <laughs> there are other reasons going on here. Um, your thoughts on this? Well, you're absolutely correct, Garland. This is politics. 
What do you expect? <laughs> you know, we do the same. We can't do when we said that, uh, for example, the, the, uh, the, the invasion of the Russians is going to take over Eastern Europe and all that, which we know, you and I know, and I am sure your listeners know, they're smart enough to know that is nonsense. So, but we, here is the thing. And, and again, I am not surprised that with the massive production of oil and natural gas, Russia will be able to impact the geopolitical uh, landscape or the geopolitics of energy for that matter. And the German, Germany right now is feeling that what it's like now to be impacted. You know, you can you you're gonna be hearing all sorts of talks as to what we're gonna bypass the Russians and all that. No, 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 no. You won't be able to replace the quantities of energy that comes to you from Russia. And now, when you have the German uh, minister of economy telling the Germans you need to cut down on, on electricity, that's not going to settle well with the Germans, where they're already starting to say to themselves where this government led us into. The other aspect to this, it's now pushing Germany and Austria, to my knowledge, as of this morning, to now restart the production of coal. And we all know what it means, because it doesn't align with the Biden administration as far as the green energy per se. And one thing I would like just to add for your listeners to know, this is what geopolitics is all about. Yes, the geopolitics of energy is very crucial. In this case, you can just compare, for example, the discovery of liquefied natural gas in Egypt and Cyprus and how now it's already exacerbating the geopolitical tensions among interested parties or countries, including Russia. So Europeans is going to be end up holding the end of the stick, economically speaking. But at the end is the European citizen who's going to be paying the price. The same thing we are witnessing right here in our country. We have just about a minute and a half left. And as each day goes by and these stories continue to come to the surface, it really appears as though the United States did not think this through very clearly. The United States has shot itself and its allies in, in, in their feet, and they really don't have many options. Uh, actually, you're right, one more. We don't have any options. The only, uh, the only one actually left is they truly wants to sit down and negotiate with the Russians. And I don't see right now the administration doing this because it's going to sort of expose the failure of the policies to begin with. Because it's all started with cutting, shutting down the, uh, the, the pipeline, uh, the Tarzan one, and all of a sudden the Americans are paying the price for it. It's sad to say it, but it's a reality. That's what we are witnessing right now. We got about uh, two minutes left. Um, and, and looking at what's going on, I don't see how the Europeans make it into next winter, through next winter, and I don't see how they deal with the internal uprisings. Um, we're seeing what happened with the French election, and there's going to be your thoughts on all of that. We got about two minutes. About the French elections, you know, the far left now is taking over <laughs> because Macron does not have the majority, which means what? That the policies that the parliament will have to approve will not be approved. Why? Because the far left is going to basically respond to the voices of the street because they want to ensure the next presidential elections. The far left is the one taking uh, control of where things are politically in France. And France is just one example. You're going to see that also in, in Germany and you're going to see it in some other European countries that 
embarked on a failed policies to begin with. We've been talking with Dr. David Walalu. He's an author and international security analyst. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 